0: We are going to continue working our way through the statement of faith. Um, this is—I I hope you understand—this is not meant to be um, uh, an, uh, you know, an in-depth, years-long um, uh, study where we will take uh, months to work through one statement. The idea is to reinforce these uh, these beliefs and as the last time we read the statement of faith, we walked through it um, as to why it's important that we have it. Uh, Tonight, we're going to simply look at the first statement, and there is so much here. It's stuff that we we repeat in some way or the other every week when we gather, okay? It's stuff that we believe. These are principles that are infused through our preaching and teaching, the songs that we sing, the prayers that we pray, I hope that none of this is new, but it is so important that we um, uh, reinforce our memory of it. I would like in the future at some point to just do a series through, never mind the whole statement, but each individual article. As we read the article before us tonight, you will see many potential areas for preaching and teaching uh, that present themselves uh, to to go deeper. But uh, we shall start um, baby steps, as they say. Let's let's read the statement, and then we're going to go to Scripture, and we're going to show why we confess these things. Let's read together. It's on the screen. We believe in the one true and living God. In three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, who is invisible, personal, omnipresent, eternal, dependent on none, unchanging, truthful, trustworthy, almighty, sovereign, omniscient, righteous, holy, good, loving, merciful, long-suffering, and gracious, and the Creator of all things. Amen. Amen. Would you believe that um, I was once in a, um, a house group? Uh, some of you may remember s- several years ago, I was working with a Polish house church in Dublin, Ireland. Sounds very random in many ways, and truth be told, it is. But the way God works often, humanly speaking, appears quite, um, quite odd in that sense. No, I'm talking with um, uh, them, I'm teaching them, Polish house church in Dublin, Ireland, and uh, they they told me very early on that they did not have any unifying beliefs as a church, which I found very interesting because they had a unifying identity in their culture. They were a Polish house church in a non-Polish environment but they didn't have unifying beliefs. So I probed on that. and I, I was, I'm, I'm not opposed to diaspora gatherings um, of, of Christ's people uh, so that those who uh, are determined to continue speaking their native tongue, if they're in a country particularly for an indefinite or short um, or, or, or lengthy period of time, uh, that they, they're able to do that in their own heart language. But if you're going to do that, It is very important that you not emphasize simply who you are as humans, nationally, ethnically, but that you emphasize what you believe. Otherwise, you end up with a scenario which they faced, where basically uh, an assortment of people who believed widely varying things united around their Polish identity and some vague understanding of God and Jesus. That's not healthy. Uh, This was further emphasized by the problems that arose two or three years after certain people had begun participating in church life. When it came to uh, the leadership's attention that this cluster of people within their gathering did not believe in the Trinity. I was mystified as to how that was possible. If you are uh, preaching the Scriptures faithfully week in and week out, uh, the songs that you sing, the prayers that you pray, surely at some point someone said something about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But unfortunately, the the teaching can often be very shallow and um, uh, the emphasis be on those basic things that people have in common, and sometimes not even scriptural things, not theological things, but more, you know, how to live a better life type of of messages. It caused great disruption, great sadness, and great grief when a substantial number of people left because they didn't believe in the Trinity. But they'd been there for at least, as I recall, a couple of years. And no one knew until someone did say something. At that point, I, I said it's very important that you have um, a, a statement of faith that emphasizes something of um, what you believe. Essential Christian doctrine. I had this very statement translated into Polish, and I took it to them and distributed it um, among those who were, were gathered and And what they did with it next, I, I don't actually recall. But we must learn lessons from others. We confess these things publicly. We state these things publicly. Because there are many who do not. And it seems an obvious thing. But there are many who would say that they are Christians. Or profess some form of Christian belief who would disagree with the the very first portions of this statement. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Did you know, for example, that um, uh, the Mormon organization increasingly does not front their Mormonism and has uh, made an effort to appear mainstream... Evangelical Christian. In various contexts, they've rebranded. They call themselves different things. We've certainly had experience of other cult groups. Uh, We shared quite earnestly at a prayer meeting some time ago about a couple of ladies who attended. And as we uh, did some research and some digging, it seems that they were here to carve away at our congregation to introduce people to their cult, a cult that originated in Korea and has absolutely bizarre views on a range of issues, but something that they, like many cults, have in common is they deny the biblical teaching of who God is. We begin with God because that's where Scripture begins, and so I want to direct your attention to the first verse of Scripture, Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Do you know that verse by memory? You should do. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And my purpose tonight, and I know there are a number of amazing, incomprehensible themes that are packed into the, uh, the, the first article of our statement of faith, my purpose tonight is not to uh, complicate things further, but to show you very clearly and simply, I hope, the beauty and glory of God as He's revealed Himself. Genesis 1:1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Just look at that first bit. In the beginning, God. We must ask the question: who is He? Our statement of faith says He is the one true and living God. One true and living God in three persons. In the beginning, God. Singular meaning. And yet, if you uh, dig further into this, the Hebrew word that is used is Elohim, which is actually a plural word with singular meaning. And so we already, from the earliest pages of Scripture, we have some concept of um, triunity. Does this passage say God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? No, it does not. But it begins to pave the, 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 the ground for that which will be revealed later in Scripture. Elohim. Plural, with singular meaning, God. Later in Genesis, when God says um, um, that He's going to make man. He says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And uh, even as we dig into that, we, we come to see that the, um, the, the early church taught on this particular passage of Scripture that God is Trinity. And that from the earliest pages of His Word, He has taught us that He is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So we believe, yes, in the one true and living God. Because in the beginning, God. And we believe that He is in three persons. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He is Elohim. One word, singular meaning, but nonetheless grammatically plural. Herein is, of course, a mystery, and it is something of the incomprehensibility of um, of God, and yet we must at the same time affirm the reality of God and the, to a point, understandability of God as He has revealed Himself. We might not understand it entirely, But it is how he has revealed himself. One of the problems that people um, have when they they grapple with the concept of the Trinity is they try to explain it in human terms. And by doing that, they actually fall into heresies. Have you ever heard the, um, the egg analogy? Shell, white... Yolk, one but three. Okay, there's another one, Um, the apple analogy. Skin, flesh, core. Okay, that one's weaker than the first, perhaps. Have you heard the ice, or let's say um, the the, um, um, H2O analogy? No, you've not heard that one. I'm giving you things that probably you, you shouldn't know. Never use these, okay? Um, uh, water, ice, steam, and it all starts. You know, you know. Te- teach your teach your children the Trinity, Israel. <laughs> take take some. I've seen it in children's workbooks, and I'm just like no take a piece of ice and put it on the, on the stove and, and, and talk about the Father. And slowly it melts and it becomes water. And then as the, as the heat happens, then it becomes steam. But you know what? It is, it, the problem with that is each of those are divisible. The skin of the apple is not the apple. It is the skin of the apple. The flesh is the flesh, not the skin, nor the core. The core is the core, not the flesh or the skin. The the um, the egg, you know, the the, the shell is eggshell, not egg. The white is egg white, not egg. In fact, in, if, if you read a recipe that and, and it says um, egg whites, beaten egg whites, you will ruin the dish if you put the entire egg in. Vice Also with the yolk, if you put, if you put um, white in, when it's the yolk that it's called for, uh, these things are separatable. They're different, substantially different. And the worst is the, the H2O, frankly, um, um, because it's, it's so obviously separate substances. That they, 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 they have um, the, se- that you know, yes, it's all H2O, but they exist Separately and independently of the other, you cannot. Ice, yes, is made of water, but no one. When, when, if you order water at the restaurant and someone brings you a glass of ice, you're going to be what is this? Or if you um, if, if if you order ice and you know suddenly steam starts you know coming out of the walls or something, it's just weird. It we know that these things are different. God, however, the Father is God. Fully God. The Son is God. The Holy Spirit is God. God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You, you can say that there is... And we have to be very careful with the language. I'm very careful. You know, feel that burden myself. There, There is... Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, distinctiveness within the Godhead. And yet, while the one are three, the three are one. Oh, really and truly. Someone says, I don't understand that. Um, uh, that doesn't make any sense. Uh, you know, they'll, they'll say, uh, uh, so are you saying, you know, it's like m- me and my wife and our child. Have you heard that one? That's another one. Normally, that one's not used by Christians. That one is used by um, Muslims and other people who would deny the Trinity. So um, uh, this this idea that we have um, uh, uh, various family analogies, that doesn't work either. Uh, What do you say to a person who says, I don't understand it? That is the point if you can understand... I've said it so many times. You hopefully know what I'm about to say. If you can understand God completely, it is not God. It is an idol that you have squeezed into the confines of your intellect, your understanding, your mind. God is beyond our comprehension. Why do you want a God that looks just like you? And that is just like you. Of course, we know, and we'll get to that at a later point, that God has made Himself powerfully and personally known, incarnate in Jesus Christ. And Jesus was just like us, but without sin. However, when we're talking about the immortal, invisible, eternal God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in the beginning, this God... It's how Bible, the Bible begins, created the heavens and the earth. We see that he's invisible. That is, he is not bound to a location, a time, or space. He's certainly not bound to your intellect or imagination, as I just said. Um, he, he, we see indicators of that throughout the passage. The Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters is language that, as we see later, while it is personal, it is nonetheless invisible. A body, physical material, does not hover over um, the, the cosmos. It does not hover over whatever these waters of um, uh, the pre-cre- uh, of pre-created existence were. Rather, God is Outside of these things that are created, you cannot see him. However, the next article, the, the next uh, line rather, of the article that we're reviewing says he is invisible and he is personal. So while you cannot see him, you can know him because he is there. He is not simply a cosmic force, cosmic forces may act. But notice something very important. Cosmic forces may act, but they cannot speak. Cosmic forces do not even act as uh, as we might act volitionally with will, intellect, reason, intelligence. Rather, they, they just happen almost accidentally. This this uh, flash of light that the astronomers um, uh, say uh, they can can detect um, uh, either comes from a cosmic force which spiritual non-believers would embrace or a personal God who spoke and said into darkness, let there be light. And there was light. Throughout Genesis 1, God says again and again, cosmic forces do not speak. They they don't interact in that way. He is personal. He's also omnipresent. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We see him hovering over the face of the waters. We can't hover over anything, we're very, very grounded. Um, Throughout the passage, out of nothing, God creates everything. All powerful. That's um, um, uh, what we, we, we see um, in his omnipotence. But his omnipresence is communicating that, uh, and it's part of that, that God is everywhere. In time, before time, in the beginning is bound by time, but God already existed. It's clear. In the beginning, God. So, He's present in all times and in all places in ways and in forms that that we cannot fully grasp or perceive and certainly cannot achieve in ourselves to the extent that the Apostle Paul says when he is talking with a a very pagan and somewhat pantheistic culture, nonetheless has no problem using the language of how the, the Lord God is not far from any One of us, for in Him we live and move and have our being. There are some people who would totally agree with that as it is spoken, but they will extrapolate from that that everything is God and that we live in the great spirit or the great force and it's all a part of God. That's not what Scripture is teaching. That's something called pantheism, okay? Pantheism communicates that, 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 that deity, cosmic godhood, is this force that we are all a part of. That's, that's not scriptural teaching. You are not God. Um, the things around us are not God. Nature is not God. Untarnished beauty in the world is not God. God made those things. But, God is present In everything. And everywhere. Very important to remember that. Because God sees and knows everything. And that is very important for things that we'll be seeing unfold as we continue this study. Um, He is eternal. Which is... uh, a part of his omnipresence, as I was stating, that, that omnipresence is not simply about um, locality geographically, but even um, in time. There was never a time when God was not, is what that is communicating, nor will there ever be such a time. He is pre existent. When our beginning began, God was. God is. He's dependent on no one, our statement says. Uh, he, was, he created, but he was not created. He does not derive his source from anything. Uh, the, the beginning is of us. When Genesis one one says, In the beginning, it was our beginning, not God's beginning. Because He's not dependent in that way. He is as He has been and as He shall be. But we we understand Him more as we, we go along. All of these things were true of Him at the beginning. And they are true of Him now. And these things are all true of God simultaneously. The other things that we're going to see unfold are things that were true of God in His nature and are true of God. These are all the things that are in God. The language that is used historically and theologically to describe this is simplicity. God is simple. I know you might be saying, well, I don't think He's very simple after all of that. He's incomprehensible, but He's simple in that all of this Is in God. The reason we struggle is because we know all of this is not in us. The problem is not God, the problem is us. The problem is not how God has revealed himself, the problem is our ability to grasp all of this at the same time, existing eternally in one being forever and ever. We see that as as we continue through the statement, that he is truthful. Throughout Genesis 1-1, after uh, it elaborates on God creating the heavens and the earth, we see how um, He saw that what He made was good. Which is a statement that makes a truth claim, is it not? To say that something is good is a statement of objective truth. It's making a, a truth claim. In the same way, saying something is bad or something is not good. When he said it is not good that the man be alone, that was a truth claim. Later, when, uh, as as we will see, uh, people rebel against God, Adam and Eve rebel against God, and uh, all that that means for us today: we rebel against him, and God speaks to our sin, making truth claims. When God makes truth claims, it is actually true. It's not just a claim. He is full of truth. He so full of truth that God incarnate in Jesus Christ said, "I am the truth." That flows into the second thing, which is distinct, he is trustworthy. So God said, "It was God saw that it was good." God said that it was good, truth claims, He is truthful, and indeed it was good. That is to say, He is trustworthy. So when God says something is true, we can trust it. You know, He's truthful and trustworthy. Those two are attached, certainly, but they are distinct. Because God speaks the truth and is full of truth, we can and should trust Him. We should listen to what He says. We should take His Word seriously. Indeed, we should submit ourselves to it. We can and we must follow Him because He is trustworthy. That will become very important as we um, look at the second article next week, Lord willing. But there's more to our text in the beginning, God. We've seen something of who He is, but now in our statement, there are a number of things that further elaborate on what He has done. God created. And we, we understand who God is by looking at what He has done. So when we consider He created, we see He is Almighty. Almighty. Further to his omnipotence, he can do all things. He created the world. We see that he is sovereign. He reigns over all things. He created all things, and by all things, uh, by, by him, all things that exist have their existence. And not only do they have their existence at the beginning, but sovereignty relates to his continuous interaction with the world that he created. So, it is to say, not only is He Creator, but He is is King. Do you believe that? It's what we state in in our statement of faith. That God is King. He is sovereign. He created and He sustains. Now, it's very important because some people's understanding of God created is reductionist. They've reduced God created to an initiative act and God then steps away. They've reduced even God's omnipresence, His uh, omnipotence, and His omniscience to that realm. Thus, everything afterwards is very subject to what we do and how we behave. There are a number of Errors, uh, totally false teachings, indeed even heresies that have cropped up around this very issue. For example, there there are some who believe that God knows a range of scenarios that might unfold, but He does not know exactly what you will. Do or choose necessarily, or he self limits that knowledge and then he interacts with the decision that you make somewhat as a process. It's actually called process or process theology. It's this procession of things. And God is, inter- there's another thing um, called, uh, you know, attached to that open theism. This idea that, that, again, God doesn't know everything. He knows everything at the beginning, but then he there's a course that's open. There's a lot of open stuff there that He's engaging with, He's interacting with. That is not scriptural teaching. We believe that God is sovereign. And as sovereign God, He is Creator. And as Creator, we believe He is King and that the God who created the heavens and the earth sustains the heavens and the earth. Yes, He does engage the heavens and the earth. He does interact with the heavens and the earth from a human perspective, but everything from the divine perspective revealed in Scripture is unfolding exactly as God has intended and planned. That should give you great hope and peace. He's omniscient. He knows all things. We should hope that he does. Um, because how can uh, he created the heavens and the earth? If you have some non-omniscient being creating the heavens and the earth, then I, one wonders how that even works, how that's even possible. Never mind creation, uh, the very work of sustaining it received a a text um, yesterday from someone who was um, sort of a fly on the wall in a family conversation, family members that were discussing some heinous crime that had been committed involving children, and um, this question of um, uh, censoring, frankly, the, the very obscene, blasphemous Uh, stuff that was said about God, the question was effectively raised, you know, if God exists, why, why this? And insinuations were made, even though they deny that God exists, insinuations were made about God not knowing everything, not having all power, not being sovereign, not being Creator, sustainer, and king. And there was great ignorance, of course, as well about sinful human nature and about rebellion against this king and his so, you know, sovereign lordship over us. This is what happens when people who are not omniscient dare to make assumptions and insinuations about the omniscient God. God who knows all things. We don't. There's a lot that we don't know. And there are some things where it is okay to not have an answer. Just bear that in mind. When, when someone is talking with you and asking you various questions, you don't have to have an answer for everything. Nor, nor, nor does God have to tell us His answer for everything. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't believe everything was spelled out to Job, who suffered horrifically and immensely. In fact, the way some atheists especially carry on, you would assume that suffering was a completely new concept and that those who wrote the Bible were utterly unfamiliar with really raw pain and heinous evil in the world. I can't believe that they've actually spent much time reading the Bible. The Scriptures openly address such things and confront such things and grapple with their realities And they always do so with the knowledge that God sees, He knows, and He has all power. And a submissiveness to His sovereign wisdom that He knows stuff that we don't know. And therefore things happen that we can't understand why and how they should happen. But it's all a part of the plan. Furthermore, lest we question we have that statement that He is righteous, holy, good, loving, merciful, long-suffering, and gracious. God created man in His image to reflect Him. and. As we see in Genesis chapter 1, he says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And he speaks of the dominion they're supposed to exercise, the stewardship they're supposed to have of creation. As the Scriptures unfold, we have a greater understanding of these particular aspects of uh, the divine nature. And yet, we can say at the very beginning, and to some extent now, that... The greatest, most noble, honorable things that can be said about humanity are those things that still clearly reflect His divine character. In other words, they are not of us. They are of God. They are glimpses, fragments of His image. However much we have taken that that image, that mirror and shattered it with, with our rebellion, there are things that we look at and we see something of God's holiness, something of God's righteousness. Where do we get this conscience? Where do we have this sense of, of what is right and, and what is good and what is, what is holy and Conversely, what is bad, evil, and impure, the whole fabric of our moral thought process is rooted in the very beginning that God created us in His image, which we will elaborate on in time. the questions that we ask, the outrage that we have, the frustrations that we we have in grappling with human suffering, particularly as pertains to the existence of God, that that moral outrage that these atheist um, family members were expressing to my friend was there because of God who is holy and good and loving and merciful and long-suffering and gracious. These things are things that we know and appreciate more in light of our sin, though, which is interesting, isn't it? There are some things that we would never fully appreciate were it not for our sin, were it not for our rebellion. we, We confess these things and we state these things as belief because they are true in God and they always were a part of his nature and character. But to know what righteous, holy, good, loving, merciful, long-suffering, and gracious are is also to know and recognize what is unrighteous, what is unholy, what is bad, what is hateful, what is vengeful, what is impatient, what is ungracious and vindictive. But God is all that is good, and we are not that. And because we are not that, we see Him more distinctly. Might it be that God has in His providence permitted sin, rebellion, that we might see and know Him more for who He is in all of His beauty and glory. Specifically, the things that you have done in your life, the things that are so unlike God, Are there so that you can see how good and great and gracious God is? Contemplate that. And as you contemplate that, that should not lead you to a place of, as Paul says, I'll sin more so I can, you know, I'll sin more so that I can see God more clearly. Absolutely not. Rather, God has shown us our sin and He has shown us His goodness and glory so that we might love Him and serve Him and hate these old ways and these bad things that we have tampered with as we pursue Him. Now, there's one other thing that I I, I, um, I want to, to show you because it's one other thing in our statement of faith. He is the Creator of all things. And while that has undergirded everything that we have said this evening, it is emphasized in uh, the, the last line of our statement of faith. And it is there in this passage. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Shorthand for everything that is. The creator of all things. The universe and anything and everything beyond. There's something that is um, uh, used in dialogue called the cosmological argument. Are you familiar with it? The cosmological argument. It's a a logical progression that um, even people who do not believe in the God of the Bible nonetheless use to um, uh, understand or to promote their concept of what is termed in vaguely theistic circles at least, intelligent design. That this world has a designer. The cosmological argument says this. One, and even though non-Christians use it as well, it is actually useful. Especially with atheists. One, anything that begins to exist has a cause. Is that true? Anything that begins to exist has a cause. Secondly, the universe began to exist. No, no one disputes that, that I'm aware of, that, that is taken seriously. Uh, they, they may have a different origin story, but there is an origin. There is an original point. There is a beginning. There is that flash of light that you know. I was reading about the astronomers talking about just a few weeks ago. But what is that? Anything that begins to exist has a cause. The universe began to exist. Therefore, the universe has a first cause. We don't believe that God began to exist. Remember, we said He's eternal. But we do believe that the universe began to exist. Therefore, the universe has a first cause. And that first cause has to be something, for the universe to exist, it has to be something outside the universe. Outside our concept of time and space. It has to be capable of generating matter and energy. It has to be capable of generating order. It has to be capable of constructing that moral framework that I was talking about a moment ago. It has to be capable of stringing together the miles and miles of of, of, um, uh, blood vessels and veins and nervous system, the electrical wiring of your body and that of billions of people throughout human history. Everyone who has existed and beyond that which can be seen and that which can be dissected, all of the atoms and the molecules and the complex structure thereof, and everything that exists has that. At its deepest, most invisible levels, structure and order, all of that has to have a first cause. All of that has to have a designer because it is intricately designed. I uh, read the words of a a Nobel laureate physicist, a man who would not embrace the doctrine of creation as outlined in Genesis 1 and 2, but he nonetheless confessed intelligent design, as one sees it from a scientific point of view, seems to be quite real. This is a very special universe. It's remarkable that it came out just this way. If the laws of physics weren't just the way they are, we couldn't be here at all. Examining creation, whether you give it a cursory glance or examine it in depth and detail, one has to confess that this is not accidental. The order of the universe and the hierarchy of the species militates against seeing the world with all of its structure, all of its order and diversity as mere chance or evolutionary survival of the fittest development. It's fascinating, mind blowing. There's uh, this uh, concept of fine-tuning. And uh, there's uh, hours and hours of uh, content you could consume on that. But that if we were a little bit away from where we are in the solar system, we would be too hot to sustain life or too cold to sustain life. That's reducing it uh, again. Hours and hours of stuff. It'd be nice if they just said that um, and had a, a, a map, an infographic. But if we were just a little closer to the sun, we would be too hot. And if we were just a little further from the sun, we would be too cold. Gravity and the way we we we, we can't even explain that. But we walk on the ground. But they can send a rocket to the moon or wherever and people floating about. They don't even get to the moon. They're just out of orbit or whatever and they're floating around. There's simulations of it. There's order. There's structure. There's something unique, distinct, and different about the world that God made. And the universe that He made and this earth that He put us in for His unique purposes. And that's why we confess, that is why we state, we believe in the one true and living God, in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, who is invisible, personal, omnipresent, eternal, dependent on none, unchanging, truthful, trustworthy, almighty, sovereign, omniscient, righteous, holy, good, loving, merciful, long-suffering, and gracious, and the creator of all things. And it starts from the very beginning of Scripture. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you have um, uh, refreshed us. Looking around the room tonight, I, I don't believe there are any atheists here, anyone who would deny the existence of some God, but I pray that each of us really knows you, The one true God, one true and living God, that we place our trust in you, for you are truthful and trustworthy. Lord, I pray that we would honor you for who you are. Uh, I pray, Lord, that you you would help us to be led to worship through these great truths. How could we not? How could we not live differently, think differently, act differently, speak differently, confessing these things? So, Lord, I pray that you would change and transform us from within as we are nourished by the truth of who you are. In Jesus' name, amen.